the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Thank you for having me. I'm doing well. Uh, great to have you. The new book, The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism, is a very good read that I hope to encourage everyone listening and everyone who reads the transcript or listens to the podcast at Highly Concentrated Hugh gets, reads, absorbs, studies, makes notes. As I traveled yesterday to the beaches of Normandy with a group of friends, they saw me just deep, deep into the right, back and forth on my annotations, etc., because it's a very unusual book for me. I wonder if many people have told you, Matt, that it's personal for them, because they're writing, you're writing about my friends, colleagues, guests, professors of the last of my 66 years, the last 50 of them. How many people have come up to you and said, well, this is like reading an index of my life? Uh, you know, Hugh, it, it's interesting. Uh, you were not the first to tell me that. Uh, several people have told me that, um, that it's like reading um about their life, and that makes sense in a way because it, it was uh, writing about my life as I wrote the history of the conservative movement, um, especially in its last uh, 20 years where I've been involved in it. Um, there are certain um, uh, mem- you know, uh, autobiographical aspects that you can find uh, in the book, and I think readers can find them too if they're connected in, to the conservative movement, if they are conservatives. Or even if they've just kind of followed the news, uh, you know, uh, over the duration of their life, because the book uh, also covers a lot of American history in addition to uh, political and intellectual history. I I made notes for a a review that I hope I will write at some point down the road. But Richard Nixon was my first big boss for many, uh, many years out in San Clemente in New York. Ronald Reagan, I worked for in the White House. George W. Bush, Donald Trump, been guests on this show many times. Harvey Mansfield, Edward Banfield are professors of mine. William F. Buckley introduced me to Charles Kessler. Harry Jaffa showed up in the studio for three hours. Larry Arnn has taken up more time on this show probably than any other person in the last 22 years. Bill Crystal assessed my thesis. Rush cut promos for me. Uh, Mark Levin and I worked together for Ed Meese. Uh, Ray Price gave me my first job. It's really, the it is so weird for me to read this, Matt. However, having done that, I will say you are mostly concerned, in my view, with what happens next. Even though you went back to the beginning, when you sat down to write The Right, uh, and that's going to be interesting for people who are listening, the book is called The Right, R-I-G-H-T. When you sat down to write The Right, what did you intend to accomplish? I will tell you what I think you did, but what did you intend to accomplish? Well, what I intended, uh, Hugh, was to write basically a one-volume synthesis of the political and intellectual history of the American right um, in, in, in order to provide my students, because I teach this material in various settings. I wanted to give them one book that they could read, and so they could learn about all of those names you mentioned, in addition to many other names that came before uh, your generation. Um, so that was my intent. My second purpose was to figure out 
where the right uh, arrived at the present moment. How did we get to where we are today? And by researching that, I ended up having to go very far back into the past, uh, further back than most of the conventional accounts of the conservative movement in America, which typically begin at the end of World War II. I had to start my story uh, about 20 years earlier in order to show what exactly conservatives were defending um, prior to the Second World War. So those, I think, were my two main purposes, to provide students a handy reference, because what I have found, Hugh, is that many people on the right don't actually know their own history. Uh, they don't know the history of the conservative movement in America. And so I wanted to just provide us a place where people can learn about it. Uh, and then my second purpose was to try to figure out how did the right reach the present moment. And by um, uh, to achieve that, I needed to go back into the past. There is a generation of firing line conservatives, of whom I am one, who cut their teeth on Buckley and watching the old PBS show. Uh, but so even those my age, we don't know about Richard Weaver, right? We don't know about these people that come before Buckley really takes the movement and embodies it in National Review and builds it out from there. And so you cover that. And by the way, I want people to know he covers it warts and all. There's a fascinating passage on the John Birch Society. And I've never much concerned myself with the nutters, Matt, but you had to dive in pretty deep there and and to who they were and how they came to be and how Barry Goldwater said, take every copy of that and burn it. I never had heard that anecdote before. So for how much of this was news to you like it was to me? Well, uh, Hugh, the, the book is the product of really uh, six years of research uh, and writing and, um, you know, I'd say uh, 10 years of uh, intensive reading. So uh, almost all of it was new to me, <laughs> I mean, other than the uh, final chapters, which, um, you know, cover events that uh, I, was, I was involved in as a, a political analyst and, and commentator. Um, so it, it was a learning experience for me as well. I've always found uh, that, you know, I've, I was a history major in college. I love the past. I think an appreciation of the past is a part of a conservative um, mind. Uh, and I have also have a habit of, of reading old journalism. I love going back into the archives of magazines like National Review, like you mentioned. I like reading old political columns from Charles Krauthammer that he was writing 40 years ago, say. And all of that basically... Um, the results in um, in this text in in the right. Now, I have never heard it referred to this way, the Beaconsfield way. You call it on page one forty three, quoting Frank Meyer. That is a reference to Lord Beaconsfield, who is Disraeli, and Disraeli conservatives are the original big tent conservatives. And uh, had you ever heard of it referred to as the Beaconsfield way before you ran across Meyer's assessment of it that way? No, I think that was unique to him, and also Whitaker Chambers used it as well, that formulation. Yeah. Well, when I went out to San Clemente, I mentioned that Ray Price gave me my first job. He actually directed me to David Eisenhower, and I went to work for David, and then I went over to Richard Nixon's office in exile at the Elba of America, San Clemente. And the first book R.N. had me read was Blake's Disraeli. And I've read it three or four times. And I, and I think it is what, what Disraeli attempted to do is what big tent conservatives have been trying to do. And I think... What you described Buckley as searching for equilibrium, trying to do. Has anyone successfully pulled off Beaconsfield way in American conservatism, in your view? Well, I think uh, President Nixon came the closest um, and um, may have been able to have achieved something like that, um, if not for Watergate. 
Um, you know, uh, it's funny that you mentioned that Nixon recommended you read Blake's Disraeli because, of course, uh, his domestic policy advisor for a time, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, later the senator from New York, recommended it to him <laughs> and, uh, as uh, a book he should read before he assumed the office of president. Um, why? Well, uh, Disraeli was a conservative who was very interested in what he called one-nation conservatism, the idea that all of the elements of a society should be working together to achieve stability and civil peace. And for Disraeli, that meant sometimes that you would uh, use government to uh, help the condition, improve the condition of the working classes and of the poor in the furtherance of civil peace and order. And I think Nixon saw himself in a similar position when he became president in 1969. The country was a wreck. It was being riven by Vietnam, by the counterculture, uh, by the revolts in the cities and on the campuses. And Nixon felt it was his job to reestablish domestic tranquility, uh, what he called law and order in his 1968 campaign. And so this view that sometimes you'd have to use government in order to um, reestablish order, and that actually was a conservative um, principle, order uh, in society. Uh, was something unique to Nixon, and I think he did a, a fair job of it, um, but, uh, but for Watergate, which really um, you know, uh, exploded uh, shortly after he began his second term. Well, I was unaware until I read The Right by Matt Cutney that Bill Buckley had problems with the Nixon uh, to China trip, and since we're celebrating the 50th anniversary that are commemorating, I'm not sure I'm going to celebrate it, given what's happened to the CCP. That was news to me. I want to compliment you as the former president of the Nixon Foundation twice and on the board still. You did a very fine job of condensing the Nixon presidency and talking to that one point which you just averred to. He populated his administration, not only with George Shultz, but also with Daniel Patrick Moynihan, not only with Patrick Buchanan, but Bill Sapphire and Ray Price. I, I, I quarrel a bit, and I'll quarrel with you on some other things as well. Ray Price was not a liberal. He was a moderate Republican. He was a Rockefeller Republican, but Nixon dragged him in. He dragged in everybody because he's, he sought to make the administration an island from which a bridge would go to every part of the movement. And I try to have made my radio show for 22 years an island to which every bridge is open. And so I haven't exiled anyone from my island. And some people have walked off, but nobody's been exiled from it. I am curious if you think anybody in the, in the movement, the, the conservative movement, small c, small m, is still open uh, turnpikes for everyone. CPAC might have been for a while, but they're not anymore. And, and by the way, I have nothing but admiration for the work they've done, but they are closed off to parts of conservatism now. Is the movement still as open as it was when Nixon threw open his White House to every brand of conservative and even some Democrats? I don't think so, Hugh. Uh, I, I think um, the movement is um, not as uh, open to um, dissent um, uh, and uh, as it once was. Uh, and I think um, because of the perceived threat from the left, the real threat from the left, a lot of conservatives have simply closed ranks and said, we need to deal with the left, that's our first priority. And so we, we don't have the time to have a long uh, discussion or debate about what we should be doing on the right. We need to worry about the left first. I do think it's interesting that Nixon, you know, um, always had a kind of a, a tense relationship with Buckley and with 
the, the people he called the Buckleyites and the uh, real, the founders of the conservative movement. And yet, as you say, he also did want to include them in his broad coalition, which included so many different figures uh, and aspects of the right and the center in America. And I'd also say, too, uh, I recently watched an interview with President Nixon that was conducted in 1992, and he was talking about leadership, and he said, you know, a leader is someone who is confident enough, enough to have very high-quality quali- people around him. And I think that's pre- visible in his administration. Some of the names that you just mentioned, and you left off, of course, uh, Henry Kissinger, right? I mean, who was Nixon's collaborator in so many ways as they undertook this um, very uh, original and um, uh, complicated foreign policy challenge of the Nixon presidency. He was someone who was not only um, interested in having as wide a coalition as he could, but he also wanted to surround himself with the brightest minds. And having Daniel Patrick Moynihan as your top domestic policy advisor and Henry Kissinger as your top foreign policy advisor, I'd say you've, you've done a pretty good job of surrounding yourself with top intellects. You know, the, the most interesting thing about the Nixon era, and it's one of my themes, so I'm going to jump ahead in my outline, Matt. Uh, presidencies can be ultimately evaluated, in my view, as how did they serve the Constitution. And you serve the Constitution by the people you put on the bench. President Nixon's greatest failure is uh, Harry Blackman. Warren Berger was not very good. Lewis Powell was okay, and Rehnquist was great. Ike's greatest failure was Earl Warren and William Brennan. Reagan's greatest failure, though I admire her character, is Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy. H.W.'s greatest failure is is David Souter. Uh, we don't know yet whether W. failed when he picked John Roberts over Mike Luddick. I don't think he did. I think they're both they're both friends of mine, and and they both listen to the show, and so they both should hear me say I don't think it makes a lick of difference which one of them was going to be chief justice in the long run, though they have different temperaments, but. It is Trump's triumph compared to all those other conservatives to have put on Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and, and ABC. And when someone replaces Matt Continenti and writes the right in 40 years, I think they're going to hold up as the most constitutionalist person, Donald Trump. Having done the most for the Constitution, understood as the frame of silver around the apple of gold that is the Declaration, by virtue of the judges and especially by virtue of those three. Of those, all those Republican presidents I just run through, do you think that Trump has done the best jo- uh, job of putting bodyguards around the Constitution as Trump did? Well, Trump uh, certainly uh, was the most successful in appointing original judges, um, judges also who had um, track records. Uh, you know, uh, we could assess their um, decisions, or in the case of Justice Barrett, we, we knew where she was coming from because of her uh, intellectual products as a professor. Um, I think that's a function of a few things. Um, the first is the uh, growth of originalism uh, in the legal academy, in the conservative legal movement, and in particular in its institutional structure of the federalist society. That, that sort of infrastructure, Hugh, wasn't present. Uh, it didn't exist at all under President Nixon, and it was just in its beginnings uh, under President Reagan. In fact, we just um, marked the 40th anniversary of the first federalist Society, uh, conference at Yale. So it took a couple generations, actually, to build up the ranks of originalist judges. And then Trump, uh, I, I think, uh, should be applauded from an originalist perspective, then selected from those ranks that it, that it took time to grow. 
So why did he do that? Well, I think the second reason is Trump, Trump was very savvy in understanding how conservatives and Republicans would react to the sudden death of Justice Scalia in 2016. Um, he knew what a blow that was uh, to the conservative movement, to the, 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 the spirit of the, of the Republican Party, the conservative legal movement. Justice Scalia mattered a great deal. And what Trump did then was say, look, I'm going to replace him with someone from this list of judges. And this list, been, there were two lists, um, was culled from the best that the Federalist Society had to offer. I think that reassured a lot of conservatives, a lot of Republicans, who still at that point in the campaign were uncertain about how Trump would govern as president. Would he actually govern as a conservative? Uh, and that, like, Trump tends to follow through on his on his um, promises when it involves a key constituency, and he did. And you're absolutely right to suggest that the legacy of the three justices will be Trump's, I think, most uh, long-lasting and consequential legacy. And it will be his uh, litmus test for conservatism and his fealty to it. He is himself not an ideologue. I think you and I would agree. There's there's very little ideology in President Trump at all. There is there is an opportunistic uh, use of tools that are available to advance his goals, which are typically personal. And the critiques of him are not usually conservative critiques. They are aesthetic critiques. I'll come back to that, but I want to go to page 385. You write that Justice Kavanaugh's nomination was, quote, saved by the classical liberal values of cross-examination, empiricism, due process, and the presumption of innocence. Got to argue with there. One of two big things I would argue with, Matt. They were saved because Donald Trump decided to keep him. Donald Trump's temperament did not allow him to fold. Donald Trump did not do what George W. Bush did to Harriet Myers, hold the nomination. Those things that you mentioned only work because Trump is a combative SOB who simply refused to fold. And that's, I think, what attracts many, many in the conservative movement to him. He may not be one of us, but if he takes one of our positions, he's damn well not going to move off of it. I, I think that was part of the reason uh, Kavanaugh's nomination saved. Um, uh, and I think that's definitely a reason why uh, conservatives are drawn to President Trump, and especially that idea of a fighting spirit and not backing down. Um, I, I do think uh, that uh, the not Myers nomination is slightly different than the Kavanaugh one. Remember, the Myers nomination uh, brought down mainly by conservative critics uh, of her uh, and worried that she would turn out to be a stealth nominee like some of the other men. Uh, figures you mentioned earlier, Hugh. Kavanaugh, of course, uh, we knew uh, that he was uh, a conservative. Uh, he came up through the W administration. He had uh, already been on the DC circuit. Um, and there it was, uh, what, you know, what is the uh, outcome of these uh, just um, unsubstantiated charges, scurrilous charges? And um, I think Trump's decision not to abandon him was very important. I also think that Susan Collins' decision to support Kavanaugh was important. And when you look at her speech, she mentioned some of those principles that um, uh, I'm, I listed in, in the quote that you read. Yes, yes, she did. Now, now, Matt, my biggest criticism of the book is because of what you set out to do, the textbook. If yours was the only book to survive, like everything else of Aristotle's corpus that we don't have, if it all vanishes in the equivalent of the Alexandria Library fire, 
readers of your book will not know about the most influential conservative of our time. And I stand by this assertion, Larry Arnn, because he has developed generations of Hillsdale College students who are out there going to carry on the work. They won't know about Edward Atzinger, who actually owns Salem Media and has produced more conservative content on the web and in the radio than any other person, I think, in America, including Rupert Murdoch, just by virtue of ours. They won't know about Charles Chaput and Timothy Dolan, bishops of the Catholic Church who are the most influential Catholics in America. They will have had one fleeting reference to Victor Davis Hanson, who is a classicist and a military historian, but, but I think so vital to how the Republicans conducted the war and understand the world and immigration you reference. They won't know Paul Gigot. They will not find a reference to Leonard Leo, who is, as you know, the Federalist Society. They won't find the name Mitch McConnell, who saved the Constitution. He's the guy that held open the vacancy of, of Justice Scalia. Leader McConnell, they'll find one reference to Karl Rove, who actually is the winning strategy for Bush to make the court come back. And they'll, they will see people like Mark Stein, who are, who are influential in, in ways. You mentioned Limbaugh, but but not Mark Levin. Do you think it's complete enough, or is yours a beltway conservative's view of the right as opposed to a national conservative's view of the right, which is what I think it is? Uh, well, Hugh, I, I will say that, the, and I don't want to scare off readers, the book is 450 pages long, um, and uh, the draft submitted <laughs> you, to my publisher and was, was You need longer. every page. <laughs> it was much longer, and uh, many of the people that you mentioned uh, were included in that original draft, and so uh, I think we can say that there is, uh, with confidence, that uh, in a subsequent edition, many of them will be included. So um, a lot of this is just simply the a function of the editing process and having to select, um, you know, what what goes in, what goes out. All of those names you, you mentioned are important. Look, on the question of Beltway conservative, national conservative, I, I you know I am a Beltway conservative. Uh, I grew up actually right outside. Uh, the Beltway uh, in Northern Virginia. I now live inside the Beltway uh, and have for 20 years. Um, and the book is really about how the uh, conservative intellectual movement has interacted with, influenced, or been spurned by the larger grassroots conservative movement that um, encompasses the entire country. So, you know, it's, uh, I tried to be as detached and uh, fair-minded as I could be, uh, and I think I achieved that in a large regard. But for sure, there are names that um, other people would have included that I didn't or that I just didn't have space to. Um, and, the, you know, there's no separating where I'm coming from um, uh, from what is written on the page. You are detached and you are fair. I want people to understand this book is a very important book for every conservative for reasons I'm about to get into. But the difference between a Beltway conservative and a national conservative is really a difference between Matt and I, not only generational. Most conservatives used to. Fred Barnes wrote a piece in The New Republic years ago, I, maybe before you were born, Matt. The Parasite Culture of Washington, which I actually took as a spur to leave D.C. in 1989 and not return until 2016. So I've only spent a dozen or 14 years of my life in the uh, in the Beltway. And the result is when you write about Ronald Reagan that he had, quote, peculiar qualities of optimism, sunniness, humor, and unflappability. I don't think those are peculiar. I think they are actually uh, uh, fairly common, indeed almost ubiquitous among national conservatives that are in every church and synagogue, every booster club, JCs, VFW, American Legion that national conservatives 
are optimistic, sunny, funny. That's the Mark Stein kind of funny and the Rush Limbaugh kind of funny. But the Beltway conservatives somehow breathe that air of world weariness. And I see it every day. It's one of the reasons I love to get out of town and I leave two thirds uh, 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 twice a year, three times a year. I get out for a month at a time just to get away from what is that. Do you know what I'm talking about? That atmosphere of resignation to, you know, people can't, they have to be sophisticated, yeah. right? They can't well, look, be happy. I, you know, I, I think I have a sense of humor, Hugh. So I want to say that all Beltway conservatives are. Uh, are yes, you do. I do. I do get what you're saying, which is that the this is a perennial problem uh, on the American right, and one that I discuss in the book, which is that the the right will often put up leaders and send them to Washington, only to find that um, within a few years, many have succumbed to the culture of Washington. They begin uh, reading the Washington Post. You know, I mean, of course, this is I'm speaking about like when it was just the Washington Post and a, and a hard copy. Now you you can read. All of the media and all the TV media is going 24 hours a day as well. So they, they begin um, adopting liberal premises and attitudes. And it, what the grassroots finds is that these conservatives are cocooned in, in a way that is detaching them from the realities on the ground across the country. I believe that is the real reason that so many conservatives in New York and D.C. were blind to the rise of Donald Trump. And I say that in my book. Um, the, the, when yes, I say that Reagan had... When I said that Reagan had peculiar qualities, I didn't saying that he's like the only person in the world who is optimistic and fun and genial. Of course, there are millions of Americans who share those qualities. What I was saying is that among the leaders of the right, he is unique. And um, I think when you when you look at uh, you can contrast uh, Reagan's personality with Barry Goldwater's day. You can contrast Reagan's personality with President Nixon, a man for whom my respect actually grew immensely in the writing of this book. Um, and you can see that there are differences. Um, and I think that the, the what I mean by the unique characteristics of Reagan as a political leader really helped the American right um, come, come to power and also, importantly, helped unify the American right around Reagan um, in a way that when, when he departs, in 1989 and goes back to California, returns to the, the nation, as you put it, the, the national conservative, um, the, 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 the movement begins to um, uh, fracture because it doesn't have that ecumenical figure like, like Reagan. They have it in Limbaugh for a little, for, for, for a while. They, Buckley is slowly retiring during this period, but they don't have one person whom all the different parts of the right can look to for leadership. And that, and that causes a lot of infighting and disarray. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.